You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Father, we sang this confession just now, and so we ask that it would be true of our hearts, that this confession of need of you would not merely be words, but your Holy Spirit would search us to shine a a light into all the, the corners of our minds and hearts to illuminate those places that we want to be strong on our own, the places we want to keep to ourselves but that we would find freedom as your Spirit exposes our need for forgiveness and for strength and for encouragement. We ask you'd speak to us by your word this morning, that we might be built up and challenged and encouraged and equipped. Thank you, you've given us your word to teach us. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be our counselor and our teacher today as we open it. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen, and amen. You can have a seat. Uh, Good morning, River City. We're going to jump right in, so go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 16. Uh, If you need a Bible, some folks are coming around, can get you one. You can follow along. There's a lot of you here this service. Um, I don't know if you think, but the Vikings don't play till 3, so you could have come at 11 and still had lunch and still watched them play far too close a game against the Giants, which is probably what's going to happen. We'll all have heart attacks. My watch will ask me, are you exercising? And I'm like, no, I'm just watching the Vikings. Um, So welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, Luke 16 is where we're at. We're continuing our way through Luke's gospel uh, to start the year as we've done the last couple of years. And um, we're here in the middle of Luke 16. Um, We're only going to cover a few verses today. If you remember from last week, if you were with us last week, and if you weren't, let me just bring you up to speed The parable at the beginning of Luke 16 comes right on the heels of the parables in Luke 15. So it's all part of one large dialogue, and I just want to remind us of that as we separate out some of these smaller parts. Our text today starts in verse 14, it's where we left off last week, but we're going to go back and actually read verse 13 because it kind of serves as a bridge to what we read in 14, and we're going to go through verse 18, which isn't a lot. We could go further, but I think this little section gives us plenty to talk about today. So let's start back in verse 13 and read through verse 18 of Luke 16. Does that make sense? Uh, It'll be on the screen as well, Um, starting in verse 13. This is God's word for us this morning. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. 
But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. At verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. This is God's word for us today. It's where we're going to pause and pick this apart a little bit. Now, the primary problem Jesus is addressing here is found in verse 15. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says this, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. A friend and a fellow Acts 29 pastor asked a question this week, in preparation for their church's study, or actually last week, in preparation for his church's study in the Gospel of Mark, um, they're, they're preaching through Mark's Gospel, and I thought his question and his answer were both really good. Noel Hakenin is the pastor at Riv Church in East Lansing, Michigan, uh, part of our network, part of our Upper Midwest, or our Midwest uh, group of churches in Acts 29. He asked this question, and I thought it was really good. What is the prevailing sin of our age? What is the prevailing sin of our age? Prevailing doesn't mean the worst sin, but the prominent one. The thing that has its hooks in us right now is how he describes it. And his answer was this. The prevailing sin of our age is that we have misplaced the center of all authority. We have been duped into thinking that we are the boss. The prevailing sin of our age is we have misplaced the center of all authority. And I think he's spot on. In our text today, Jesus is addressing much the same thing where he says this, you justify yourselves before others. This idea of self-justification, you believe and you live as if you are the center of authority in your own life. And ultimately, in your world, your universe, you are the one who determines what is right and wrong. You judge for yourself, and you judge yourself, and you judge others based on your set of rules. And you really only care about the opinions of others outside of yourself insofar as they reinforce or validate what you already think, feel, or believe to be true. Self-justification. Now, the fallen condition of humanity on display in this passage is just that. It's a misplaced center of authority. Now, when I say justification, it's kind of a big, you know, $10 word. For our purposes, let's just define it like this. If you are justified, you are declared, it's a declaration statement, justification a declaration of being right and good, to be morally upright, to be righteous. You hear this language often in the courtroom, particularly in matters of self-defense, where the actions of the person who's the defendant, were their actions proper and right according to the circumstances? And what tends to happen is a judge or a jury decides either yes or no, the responses or actions were proper or not. Were those actions justified? And if they are found to be right or proper, then that person is justified. Does that make sense? Jesus is identifying the problem. There are those who justify themselves 
before others, and this is a faulty way of thinking. We seek and try to justify ourselves before others. But we don't make that kind of declaration. In this economy of the kingdom of God, Jesus is king. And because he holds all authority, he makes that declaration. Jesus is king, he holds all authority, and it is by faith in him that we are then purged of our self-justification as we press in to the kingdom. That's our, the big idea I'm hoping to get across today, that Jesus is king, he holds all authority, and by faith we are purged of our self-justification as we press in to his kingdom. Now, I want to ask a couple of overall questions then as it relates to this, and then a series of diagnostic questions to help us answer our big question. Hopefully it makes sense. The question is this, how do I know the degree to which I am trying to justify myself? To use Noel's language, how do I identify my center of authority? I think this is a question we need to ask. Because it's not always obvious on the outside, based on our actions, what's important to us or who has the authority in our lives. And so in this text, I've found four diagnostic questions that I think are raised in this text to help us answer that bigger question of how do I know where my center of authority is? Four questions we find in this text. We're going to take them one at a time. The first one we find is this. Question number one, what do I love. The reason I started back in verse 13 is because Jesus gets right at the heart of it in verse 13. He says, you can't serve two masters. You're going to love one and you're going to hate the other. So the obvious question is, what do I love the most? We talked about it a little bit last week. What are the things that demand my time and my attention and my affection? Verse 14 tells us straight up, the Pharisees were lovers of money, which is, in contrast, they were not lovers of God. You can't be both. You can't love both, remember? So if they loved money, then they're not loving God. And this sets the stage for everything else. The most outwardly religious people here in this passage are the ones who love God the least. Now, the Pharisees at this time often had a pretty messed up view of theology when it came to money. Their theology of money kind of went like this. They believed that the money that they had, the blessings that they had, the comforts that they had was evidence. It was proof that God must be pleased with them. And so as long as they had material blessings, they assumed that they were good with God and God was good with them. So any sin that might be present in their lives was hidden, if you will, underneath this idea, look at all the ways God has blessed me. Surely, if, if we're doing well, this means God is blessing us. And if we were doing something wrong, then God wouldn't bless us like this. The question is, do we view stuff and money and material possessions and comforts in the same way. Do we also have a messed up view of a theology of money like the Pharisees here? Do we mistake happiness or comfort or fat stacks of cash for God's approval of us? 
Do we make the same error thinking that because our lives are generally good, then that must mean God must be cool with how we're living? That's the first question in pursuit of the kingdom and of, in the purging of our self-justification. What do I love? So these Pharisees, who, by the way, are lovers of money, they hear what Jesus is saying. They hear his <clears throat> convicting teaching on stewardship, and they realize he's directing his correction toward them. You can almost see it in the little spaces between, like, I think he's talking about us. And how do they respond? Luke, four, uh, Luke 16, verse 14 tells us. Here's how they respond. They ridiculed Jesus. They ridiculed him. And that response leads to our second question. The first question is, what do I love? The second one is this, how do I respond when I'm confronted with the truth? The ESV, the translation we're reading from, says they ridiculed him. Other translations say they scoffed at him. Now this is more than an eye roll. This is a sneer. This is disgust directed at Jesus. And the word that Luke uses here, when <clears throat> we get translated as ridiculed, <clears throat> excuse me, is an interesting one. Luke only uses it in one other place that I can find in his gospel account, chapter 23, verse 35. Here's the other place that Luke uses this word that we get translated ridicule. Jesus is hanging on the cross in agony. Luke says this, the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, this is what they said, this was their ridicule, their scoffing. He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. You can hear the disdain, the rage underneath. Let him save himself, the liar, right? That's what's happening here. This isn't just a little discomfort by the Pharisees who are like, oh, this guy makes me feel uncomfortable. They're angry. The reality is nobody likes to have their weaknesses exposed. But Jesus is a master at looking through the surface, through the outside of a person, into the heart, the motives. And that's what's happening here. Jesus is calling out their love of money and all the comforts and status that it brings them, and they don't like it. And the reason they don't like it is because it's true. And they know it. Their covetousness, their greed, couldn't be hidden any longer. And they hated him for it. And what was their reaction? They were defensive. They lashed out and they sneered at Jesus. That's the question then for us. How do you and I respond when we are confronted with the truth? When our sin is confronted, do we quickly go into defense mode? Or can we actually humbly listen and receive rebuke and correction? Are we quick to listen? Or do we quickly seek to justify ourselves in some way? Now, we all probably feel defensive at times, and not every criticism is fair. Just go on record as saying that. Not everything someone says about you or thinks about you is right or true or fair. There are, there are circumstances and details that some people don't know. And if they had 
the information that you have, it is possible that their criticism of you, your words or your actions might be different. And I'm sure it's actually more often true that way. But in some ways, that doesn't matter to the question that I'm asking. Because I'm convinced that more often than not, there is at least some small sliver of truth in almost every critique, in almost every criticism that can be a benefit to the one who receives it. Especially, especially if that correction, that critique is coming from a trusted source. This isn't some random guy who's pressing on the heart motives of these Pharisees. This is the son of the living God. Trusted source. Right? Is this person who's, who's leveling this charge or pressing into this area of my life, are they for me? Do they desire my holiness? Do they desire that I am satisfied in Jesus? Do we put our hope in the same gospel does he or she want me to flourish under God's hand of blessing? Do they, want, do they desire for me that I wouldn't sit under the weight of God's judgment any longer than I have to? If those things are true, then I'm almost convinced that there's at least something that they are seeing in me that is worth consideration for my good. But beyond simple critique, this isn't just I don't like Jesus' style. What Jesus is facing here is more than a difference of opinion. Jesus is addressing their sin. And at the heart of it, those who are listening to him don't like their sin being called out. So let me add a layer to my question. When we are confronted with our own sin, how do we respond? Do we respond in anger or defensiveness or humility and contrition? Again, the question is this. Where is the center of authority for me. If it resides with me, then I can have all sorts of excuses and reasons, right? There's our, there are circumstances for the things that I've said and done. I can explain those things. But if the center authority relies with God and with His Word, which leads to the third question to ask, where does our center of authority lie? And this is a doozy. Do I love what God loves and do I hate what God hates? Look at the second half of verse 15. Jesus says, For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. I said it last week, it's helpful to understand in many of Jesus' teaching and parables his use of contrast. He draws these clear either-ors, contrasting statements. Jesus is saying, you, you praise things that are not praiseworthy. You call evil things good and good things evil. As an example, many of the scribes of the day, and this relates to their use of money, many of the scribes and Pharisees of the day would overlook the obvious sins of wealthy benefactors. Who would, the reason why they would overlook the sins of some is because those people would invite them to parties and invite them into their homes. And so they would downplay those sins, but they would hammer hard on the sins of the poor in their public teaching. They were good at picking and choosing acceptable sins based on how well it played for them in the public sphere. Things that God's Word speaks to with clarity 
about the treatment of others. Both those in the covenant community and those who were outsiders to God's covenant people. God's word is clear about how to care for widows and orphans in your own spiritual family and how to show compassion and hospitality to the foreigner. There were instructions in God's word for God's people about God's design for husbands and wives and the commitments of their covenant vows and the way that they relate to each other. Things about which God is clear in his law and the prophets that were ignored or explained away by those who were supposed to be the religious ones. That's what's happening here with these Pharisees. The things that God has called good, they're ignoring or downplaying, and things that God has said are not good, they celebrate. And if we're honest, the same thing happens all around us in our cultural context. There are a handful of current things that I see that God calls evil and yet are being celebrated as good in our culture. The slaughter of over 60 million babies by abortion is relabeled reproductive health. The breakdown of one of God's first common graces given to humanity, marriage. It's there right in the beginning. And this isn't a modern phenomenon. The breakdown and and downfall of marriage in the West began a long time ago. And was just perpetuated by this idea that of no fault of anyone's, you could relatively easily back out of your marriage covenant. And it's continued to today where marriage can mean whatever we want it to mean, rather than the gift of God that it was from the beginning, when a man would leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and the two would become one flesh. There's more. The mass confusion being promoted when it comes to our identity as male and female. That rather than God making humanity in His own image, the imago Dei, male and female created by God, we are told to fashion for ourselves an identity. And rather than the beautiful, unique blend of masculine and feminine traits within God's good design of male and female, we have a distorted collection of parts that's confused and broken. And rather than protecting some of the most vulnerable in our culture, that is children, we actually do them harm and add more confusion by promoting and affirming things that just are not true and end up celebrating their exploitation in the name of progress. What should be loving, patient care and truth-telling is deemed hurtful and damaging. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God is how Jesus confronts these Pharisees. Now, let me be very clear. The compassion and self-sacrificial love that we are called to as followers of Jesus, love for neighbor, compassion for the harassed and the helpless, patience and generosity for those who are beat up and broken, is not contingent on ignoring sin and calling evil things good and good things evil. Okay? And this isn't just society and culture. This is a heart issue for us. When we are confronted with the truth of God's word on a topic that hits home, that is personal to us, that makes us uncomfortable, do we submit to God's word on the subject or do we go in search of someone who can confirm our interpretation and in turn justify our position that we already hold? 
Now, Jesus is talking to a bunch of first century religious leaders, and he essentially tells them, you know better. How does they know better? The prophet Isaiah writes this in Isaiah chapter 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. I don't know what that means other than you're really good at partying. Valiant men in mixing strong drink, you're good at the wrong things, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. How did people know what God called good and evil? He gave them his word. He gave them the law and the prophets. Which leads us to our fourth diagnostic question in search of finding what is our center of authority. Question number four, do I delight in or despise God's instruction? Look at verses 16 and 17. Jesus is continuing. He says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, The good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Jesus tells them, God has told you already what is good. You know, you already know from the law and the prophets how God has revealed himself and what he desires of you as his people. And then Jesus uses this example of divorce to expose the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. When we read this earlier, you may have went, gee, that kind of stands out weird in this passage. Why is that there? Here's at least part of the reason why I think it's here. This idea of marriage and divorce was a hotly debated topic of the day. Different teachers, different rabbis had different interpretations of the rules and the regulations surrounding divorce and remarriage. In fact, there's a wide variety of interpretations. Here's a couple that caught my attention. One line of thinking, one uh, Pharisee taught that a man could divorce his wife if she burned his dinner. Not making this up. Another, another taught maybe even more extreme, that if a man found a woman who was more attractive than his wife, he could divorce his less attractive wife to now marry the more attractive one. Jesus gets pinned on this all the time where the Pharisees are asking, "Uh, teacher, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Right? And Jesus puts that question to bed. Now in this gospel account, There's only this one verse, verse 18, and there's no more detail. In Matthew chapter 5, which Jesus has a parallel teaching, Jesus does go on to say there are legitimate reasons where divorce is permissible, right? But what he's pressing on here is that there are religious leaders of the day who knew what God said clearly and had twisted it and reinterpreted it to meet their own desires. That's what he's pressing on. This is not designed to be an exhaustive teaching in one verse, Luke 16, 18, on divorce. It's not meant to be that here in this context. It's used as an example of the places where God has clearly spoken, and rather than delighting in what God has said and submitting to what God has said, we take what he has said and we reinterpret it to meet our own ends. 
They despise God's word and they are inventing ways to work around it. Does that make sense? That's what's happening. They are inventing ways to skirt what God has said is pretty clear. And Jesus says, the law and the prophets, you've had all these until John. He's talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the the forerunner to the Messiah. John was preparing the way for Jesus. John 5, Jesus says this. He's also giving a critique to the religious leaders. And he says this, you search the scriptures, you search all of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, the law of Moses, you search all those things because you think that in them you have eternal life. Jesus says, John 5, it is they, it is those scriptures, he says, that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you have, you may have life. Jesus is saying the scriptures, the Torah, the law, the prophets, they are all bearing witness about me, Jesus says, and yet you refuse to come to me. You don't really believe what God has said, even though you claim to be law keepers. Because you don't believe in me. The one God has sent to fulfill all the law and the prophetic promises that God has given. Look back at verse 17. He says, But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now, real quick, I want to take a slight side tangent here. I think this is important to talk about. Jesus makes it really clear, and the other gospel writers record Jesus teaching this as well, that he has not come to abolish the law, to do away with it. Rather, Jesus says, I have come to fulfill it. Briefly, God's law is based on the covenant relationship that God has made with his people. The law then constitutes the requirements and the promises for that covenant relationship. And Jesus says, I've come that all of those promises might be fulfilled in me. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3 that the point of the, the, the point that commandments of God, the law of God, doesn't get annulled or canceled once they're ratified, once they are signed. Paul's essentially saying, if, if a man doesn't back out of a covenant promise, surely God won't. Listen to verses 16 through 18 of Galatians chapter 3. Paul writes this. He says, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. This is covenant promises. Were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Paul writes, It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring. Paul writes, who is Christ? This is what I mean. The law of Moses, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Pause. The law that God gave Moses does not say the covenant promises don't matter. Now you have the law. It's not what it happens. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. What does this mean? It means that God made a covenant promise to Abraham and to his offspring, who is Christ. The promise was to be fulfilled in Jesus. And along the way, 430 years later, 
Moses is there. God gives, renews the covenant that he made with Abraham, gives the law to Moses, not to take away from the promises that were given, but because of the sinfulness of man. So God's people through Moses were given the law to keep them from driving off a cliff into oblivion. Y'all need help. I'm going to send Moses. Okay? The law was never given to supersede the covenant promises or given as a solution to sin. The law was given as a guardrail, a guide, a guardian put in place to hold us until the time when the promised offspring would arrive. He then fulfills the law, Jesus, receives the promises of the covenant that were established. He reestablishes now a new covenant in himself so that in Christ we now share his inheritance as Abraham's offspring and heirs to the promise. Okay? The challenge for us, maybe you're like, why did you go there, Jake? Here's why. The challenge for us is that because we're gospel people, right? There's a fear of us becoming legalistic. So we shy away from what God has clearly outlined in his moral law. But just as we read to start our time in Psalm 16, verse 11, the psalmist writes, David writes, you make known to me the path of life. Pastor Matt Chandler was teaching on Psalm 16. He asks this question, how are we to know the path of life? And then he gives this answer. This is Chandler. He says, the first way that God lets us know the path to life is by giving us the moral law. To be serious, this is Chandler still, to be serious about the moral law of God is not legalism. It's not legalistic to say that God has laid out the path for us and that path is a moral path. Now, moralism, he continues, is demonic and wicked. Moralism says I have to do these things to be accepted by God. We should condemn that, preach against that, and catch that on fire, and don't let anyone put it out till it's gone. To which I say, amen. I'm not talking about moralism, he continues. I'm talking about the path to life. Because I'm loved and saved, let me stay on this path. I think it was Pastor Devin who said in one of his first sermons, or early sermons here at River City, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. The question is, and we can and should ask this, when God speaks, especially all things that are challenging or uncomfortable or things that confront us, when God speaks, when God's word speaks about marriage or sexuality or generosity or greed about sin and repentance, do we delight in what God has said or do we despise it? Now, we hold to the doctrine of sola scriptura. It's a Reformation doctrine. Not that the Bible is the only authority that exists, but that it is the first and final, the supreme authority, that it's sufficient and that it is clear on all matters of life and godliness. Now, as an aside, if, if I've ruffled your feathers a little bit here, can I just encourage you, if this is an area of wrestle, can I encourage you to maybe... Take a passage of Scripture, say Psalm 119, and read through it and meditate on it, not just because it's really, really long, 
but because there's this repetition in Psalm 119. So that we might receive God's word like David receives it. That God's word would be sweet to our taste. Sweeter than honey in our mouths. Psalm 119 verse 103. That it would be for us a lamp for our feet and a light to our path. Verse 105. How do I know if I have a misplaced center of authority? Do I despise in? Do I despise or delight in God's words? So where do we go from here? As I just said, we can't law ourselves out of our sin. We can't law ourselves out of our problem. Look at what verse, uh, Jesus says in verse 16. We kind of skipped over it earlier. Here we're coming back to it. He says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Maybe this stands out to you. Everyone forces his way into it. Here's a way of understanding it I think is helpful. I think he's saying that those who, are, who want into the kingdom, they're in hot. They're ready. It's like the parable of the, the man who finds a treasure buried in a field. Jesus tells, right? This man finds this treasure in a random field, recognizes its value, and goes and sells everything he has to go and buy that field. Because he knows that what's buried under that field is far more valuable than everything else that he owns. So many people are drawing near to Jesus. These are the ones who recognize they're the needy ones. If they could, they'd sing that song that we just sang. I need thee. I need you. They're the broken ones. They're the ones willing to say, help. I'm a sinner. I need someone to help me, to save me. And everyone who receives this kingdom, receives it with joy. That's what Jesus is getting at here. These people who these Pharisees criticize, man, they're coming in hungry because they're broken and they recognize this guy can do something about it. I don't need help. Right? So here's the hope for us. As we press into his kingdom... I think God is gracious to, to begin to purge this self-justification from us. But I think it starts with this surrender, this willingness to say, I'm, I'm coming into the kingdom. See, we can try harder and do better, right? I'm not even going to ask how many of your New Year's resolutions are already dead. Maybe I should. There was a lot of chuckling just now right? We can separate out different lists, try to do our best to keep the big ones and hope the little ones don't count too much against us. We can even try hard to reinterpret and twist what God has said to make it fit our already decided positions. But all of these things fall short. All of these things actually feed the narrative that we can justify ourselves. See, it's easy to point the fingers at the Pharisees and be like, look at those religious Pharisees. But the problem is, all self-justification is just living like a Pharisee. You don't have to be particularly religious to want to justify yourself. Luke 16 reminds us, as hard as we might try, we cannot justify ourselves. There must be some kind of justification, some kind of being made right that comes from outside of us. 
And this is the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to do what we could not do. In fact, it's because in the gospel, the broken parts of us, our sin, are not brushed off or explained away. They're dealt with. And that allows us to face our sin and pursue the righteousness that we already have in Christ. Author Jerry Bridges, he's been connected with uh, navigators, I think, for a long time. I I don't know that he's still living. I didn't even look. Um, I don't think so. If that's wrong, I apologize to Dr. Bridges, wherever he is. Um, He wrote this really good book. Uh, If you're looking for a a short, easy read, it's called Respectable Sins. uh, Jerry Bridges writes this. He goes, Our sins are forgiven, and we're accepted as righteous by God because of both the sinless life and the sin-bearing death of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no greater motivation for dealing with sin in our lives than the realization of these two glorious truths of the gospel. What two truths? The sinless life and the sin-bearing death of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in Christ alone that our sins are forgiven, that we are accepted as righteous and as justified. And the blessing of living in this kingdom is this, that there is available to us, to everyone who humbles themselves, there is available an inexhaustible supply of God's grace. It can't be purchased. It can't be earned by good behavior. It comes by faith. So, We hear this invitation from Jesus to live in his kingdom, to live under his rule, and we press in and take hold of this invitation with joy. Brothers and sisters, let us be free of continuing to justify ourselves. Let us freshly surrender to King Jesus who rules with all authority and let us be purged of our self-justification as we press in to his kingdom. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the gift of sending Jesus Christ who didn't wait for us to love him, didn't force us to get cleaned up first, but you met us in our brokenness and in our need and died for sinners in order that we might be made saints. We confess the default is often to self-defense and self-justification, and this makes me uncomfortable, or this isn't fair, and would you just help us surrender this desire to make ourselves right? that we might actually receive from you, Lord Jesus, the one who actually makes us right. I pray we'd see in the bread and the juice this fresh reminder, the sin-bearing death of Jesus for us. And that we'd both be convicted and renewed as we partake today. Expose and purge us of our self-justification 
that we may walk in your light and in your kingdom as your beloved sons and daughters. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.